Hello and welcome to the Animal Intuitive Show. This is Ann Angela Webb, the Animal Intuitive, and today I have a very interesting guest who's here from the dog lab of the Indian Institute of Science, Education and Research in Kolkata, India. And we're gonna be able to do to ask her some questions today and get to talking about some really fascinating work that they've been doing there. So get your cup of coffee and sit back and enjoy. Hello and hello, Dr. Badra. How are you this evening? Good. How are you? Good. And I say evening because Dr. Badra is joining me at about, I think, eight o'clock there in India. Yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. Um, it's ten thirty in the morning here, so we have a little bit of a time difference, but we worked it out so that we could all all be awake at the same time. Um, so <laughs> I'm glad that we were able to figure that out. Um, I was very excited to be able to have Dr. Bajra on as a guest because, as I mentioned, of the research that they're doing, um, some really fascinating information has come out. And if, by the way, you are enjoying the show and you uh, would like to let other people know about what's going on here, we have some um, great guest interviews. I do Thursday night um, animal communication for free if people call in. You can subscribe and hit the bell to be notified about that and like us if you wouldn't mind. So, um, Dr. Bodger, maybe what you could do is just tell us a little bit about your background and, uh, you know, just about the dog lab and what it, what it's about and what you guys, what you do there and just to get started. Sure. So I'm an associate professor at the Indian Institute of Science, Education and Research, Kolkata. And uh, I study behavior, ecology and cognition of uh, what we technically call the free range in dogs or just stray dogs. And uh, at the dog lab, uh, we are of course all dog lovers because otherwise we wouldn't be spending hours watching dogs <laughs> on street and be, you know, us. Uh, uh, uncomfortable questions by people and you know uh, staying out in the heat and rain and all kinds of weather so of course we are all dog lovers but what we are trying to do is we are trying to understand uh, behavior of dogs in their natural habitat where uh, they are a free population and at the same time they are living close to humans so we try to understand how they live what their social lives are like and we also try to understand how dogs interact with humans how they are able to adjust to humans on streets and you know what are the adaptations that dogs might have evolved without having any training so that is the kind of work that we are doing as for my background, I did a PhD in animal behavior from the Indian Institute of Science uh, with uh, Professor Raghavendra Gadakkar, where I studied politics in a paper wasp society. And uh, from there, I moved on to Isaac Kolkata, joined here as a faculty, and uh, I started the dog lab, and I've been here for the last 12 years. Wow, that's quite a background. Um, so. I have lots of questions and I want to make sure everyone knows in the chat that they can ask questions too. So, you know, Dr. Badras told she's happy to answer any questions that might come up. Um, so I figure what we do is maybe just get started with showing a little bit of a, a video here of the dog lab, some of the work that you do on the streets. So let's Bring that up. 
Too. <laughs> there we go. That's okay. all the background sound we always get. <laughs> so tell us what what's happening here with these doggies. Uh, that's basically a group just outside my house. You could just hear my son talking to me oh, okay. in the background. <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, basically you know day to day interactions within a group. So actually, uh, some of those dogs are. Uh, juveniles which have just become adults and this is the beginning of the meeting season so you see a lot of interactions uh, and they are also re responding to some other groups so you can see all of them running towards uh, some sound and then uh, there is some play happening so it's like uh, uh, gen generally a family group interacting among themselves oh so neat so I mean I kind of know this I've been to India and I it, it seems like there there's more of the there are more dogs that are free ranging i think you got you call them free roaming or free ranging yes um yeah okay so um and they they're so so tell us about this because they're more friendly right but tend to be and that's kind of part of the whole dog lab study is is what you have found about their willingness to interact with people and yeah so uh Typically, you know, we have uh, different kinds of responses to dogs. So I should be very clear about it. Not everybody really likes to have dogs around on the streets. A lot of people are scared of dogs because, of course, a dog can bite. You know, that possibility is always there. And uh, there's always the fear of rabies. And India is one of those countries which has a very, very high load of rabies. If you just look at sheer numbers. But then we also have a very large population. That's something, you know, we have to keep in mind, just not looking at numbers. Uh, but uh, if you look at the overall behavior of the dogs, they are really very friendly and uh, they rarely actually go around fighting people or chasing people. Uh, and they also tend to make a lot of friends with people. So they'll come give you the puppy eyes look. Uh, especially if you happen to be eating something on the street side, <laughs> they'll come and uh, they'll, you know, give you this very sad face and you will be tempted to feed the dog. That's very common in India. There are uh, dogs who are so adept at begging that that's the only way they eat. Uh, and I have even heard stories of dogs which will come and paw you and ask for food when you're eating. So wow. that's also quite well known. I've not met a dog like that, but I have heard lots of people tell me about such dogs in their neighborhoods. And then uh, they'll come, they'll wag their tails at you, they'll try to follow you around wherever you're going. And uh, in fact, dogs at times get into trouble with other dogs because they follow a human friend into a foreign territory. And then the dogs in that territory get aggressive towards this intruder. And uh, this is something that happens in their lives quite a lot. Uh, our studies have shown that 50% of the time they just do nothing. They are lazing around, you know, lying, sleeping, sitting around. And the remaining 50% of the time, if you look at their activities, uh, very, very rarely we see aggression. Even within the groups, nighttime aggression happens, but mostly in terms of vocalization. So they're not really as aggressive as people tend to think they should be. Mm -hmm. And uh, the f relationships with humans, it's very fascinating because uh, they really seem to understand, you know, which human is more likely to 
you know, respond and mm. they kind of, uh, you know, make eye contact and wag their tails and come towards you and you, uh, you know, melt because you are a dog lover and that happens very, very often. Yeah, and they've chosen you, right? That's <laughs> it's like an honor when they <laughs> for us dog lovers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is actually. Oh, let me, I'll put this over me so we can see. Oops. Eh, sorry, I just want to have this picture so that you can talk about. So this is one of the scenes. Um, that I wanted to show everybody that was neat. Um, so to just kind of highlight what you're talking about with these the dogs that come up to. So this man, maybe you could tell us about what's what you know about this picture. I can't see the picture. On oh, you can't screen. see it? Oh, no. If I put it over me, can you see it? Okay. Okay, it's okay. I can open it on my phone. Not a problem. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, so... Yeah, so this is something you see very commonly in India, you know, somebody who is a vendor either, ha you know, uh, very often there would be some people selling food or, you know, uh, maybe raw meat or fish or uh, some other kind of cooked food and people would be go around, you know, peddling food in neighborhoods and then dogs would come surround this person and uh, they typically would get scraps thrown at them. So that's a very, very common sight. And e even in fact, uh, in uh, you know in the neighborhood here there is a fish vendor who comes and I often stand in my balcony and watch him because he will be selling fish and then he will be uh, you know the dogs will all be following him and nobody will fight with anyone you wow. know dogs across the territories would, would calmly wait and he would finish selling the fish and cutting it up and then all the scraps he'll give to the dogs and they'll happily eat and go away so as if they know that if they start a fight then this guy is not going to feed mm. them and there's going to be trouble. So they Very avoid trouble at any cost. That's so interesting because I was just thinking, how? How does that work out that they don't fight over the food? Because I would think they'd be thinking, well, you know, this we this is going to be maybe like we're not all going to have an opportunity to get this food. Do they let each other, do they all get some? Like, do they have a system amongst themselves? Yeah. or? <laughs> yeah, so actually we are right now doing a study where we are trying to understand this experimentally. So in a group, uh, if you give them food, then what we are seeing is there seems to be a subtle understanding of hierarchy. Uh, and typically there are one or two dogs who will come forward first and start feeding and get to the you know more uh, richer source. So we are doing an experiment with uh, chicken and biscuits and uh, uh, you know mixed up together and the individuals who come earlier feed on the chicken and then there are others who are kind of low rankers but it's very subtle they're typically not really you know running and getting um, to the food but they're kind of waiting for their turn and coming up and sometimes the uh, first and second responders will uh, shoo these others away by a bark uh, and get the food but most of the times uh, there will be not much aggression but they will kind of wait for their turn and come and feed. So uh, looks like, yes, they have some kind of an understanding and uh, fights do happen at times, uh, especially, you know, where we have uh, maybe a 
big uh, garbage dump and a lot of dogs are coming to feed and then there are uh, you know two dogs are trying to get to the same piece of food or maybe a chicken bone or something then they do fight but it's uh, very often seen that in one garbage dump there are six dogs who are happily foraging together and not fighting oh. so fights are uh, less common than uh, occasions where they are not fighting does that have anything to do with um families i know there's several articles that you have written and i know one of them was about uh you know sort of talking about how the dog world has uh, i think it was called take a bow wow street dogs keep joint family alive and kicking so maybe you could talk about that a little bit um <laughs> yeah so, so yeah we found that uh Uh, they do live in uh, kind of family groups often you will find that there is a mother and her offspring who are living together or uh, two or uh, three uh, sets of uh, overlapping offspring of the same mother and um, you know they are all together so they're like siblings from different mating seasons and uh, they are together in a group so they are uh, mostly related but then we sometimes also find that a random dog from outside comes in and joins the group and is uh, taken in especially if it's a juvenile mm. uh, so uh, it's uh, rarer for an adult to come and join a group but juveniles sometimes come and join groups or sub adults so okay. uh, but mostly these are family groups and uh, probably because they are family groups there is more cooperation because what we have also found is um, The, uh, that's what the paper was about that uh, there is a lot of cooperation in uh, pup rearing which is happening so uh, mother shows a lot of care of course directly towards the pups but then there are other adults both males and females in the group who would be protecting the pups you know licking and grooming them uh, males especially there would be some males who would come and bring food to the puppies play with them uh, even regurgitate food for them. them and we call them putative fathers because we have not done the genetics so we also found that there are um, female relatives who are showing care so it could be a grandmother or an older sibling or an aunt so the mother sister who are also taking care of pups together so it's that's that's why we call it a joint family so it's a very complex uh, family group it's so interesting because we always think that the men the the men that the males don't stay um i i'm wondering uh, now if that's just a total myth here and there yeah. or if it's no no the males do stay uh we have groups where there are males and females uh they're of course not pair bonded they are promiscuously mating so everybody mates with everybody and uh, the males do stay in the same group sometimes they can leave but even females can leave. uh but uh they the groups can expand with both males and females and this putative father is very interesting because uh, often you know we have seen that there are two males in the group the mother allows one male near the pups and this male takes care of the pups a lot but whenever the other male comes towards the pups the mother becomes very aggressive mm-hmm. sometimes one male is accepted as the caring uh, adult in two adjacent groups who are otherwise fighting among themselves but this one male is allowed uh, near the pups of both groups and mm. uh, that's very interesting because uh, then uh, we have always wondered that maybe the mother knows who the father is oh. otherwise why is she rejecting 
advances by certain males towards its pups and allowing uh, one male to come to the pups. Wow. That's very interesting. Like just intuitively. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Because it would be just an intuitive knowing, right, that she would have? I, mean, I don't know. Maybe the pups, uh, you know, uh, for example, in other uh, species, uh, I, I, I can only relate to this from the in a social insect literature where we know that smell has a lot of signals. Okay. So, you know, maybe they can smell each other and find out. I don't know. Even the males, uh, they don't do this to all pups. So, you know, there, there seems to be some kind of uh, okay. recognition. But still now we don't know how. That's really interesting. Wow. Um, fascinating. And and it does make me wonder because we don't, we really tend to think, I, I don't know, have you, do you have any sort of contact with anybody in other countries like the United States to talk about like what they see, what we see here? Have you... Oh yeah, uh, I do interact with uh, several of the dog groups, uh, dog research groups. I interact with uh, Clivin, I interact with um, uh, the groups in uh, Europe. So there is uh, Adam McClurshy, there is um, uh, Friedrike and Sarah. Uh, then there is uh, Monique Kudel with whom we have actually done some collaborative work. So yes, we do have uh, contact with people. Uh, but then, uh, you know, they are always working with pets. And I think with the pets, it's a very different mm. scenario because uh, mm. they are being raised by humans in a very different environment. Whereas we are really working with animals which are absolutely free and have a very different lifestyle. Right. Totally different. Is Are you pretty much the only ones that you know of that are doing this work in the world? Right now, uh, no. Initially, when we started, yes. But I'm actually very happy that there are people now who have started working in other parts of the world. There is a group working in Bali, uh, McClurchy's uh, student. Then there is uh, a group working in Chile. Then there is uh, Sarah and uh, uh, some people who are working in Morocco. So more interest has been generated in uh, ranging dogs and people have started realizing that it's important to uh, study them. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. And do they? Does anybody talk about um, if if you've had contact with the the um, maybe? I'm just wondering if you've found out anything else about um, like other locations where the fathers are sticking around the male f or just any uh, male at all. Well, nobody really has looked into this uh, kind of detailed behavior yet because everybody has started more or less on the cognitive, you know, dog-human interactions front or basic natural history. Uh, because we have 12 years of data, we can say a lot more. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm hoping that people would uh, check it out because then it will be quite fascinating. Yeah, I wonder what else that leads to, you know, like what else that would tell us. Um... I'm not sure, but maybe other Yeah, there, uh, there would be a lot of, uh, you know, questions which would uh, come up about the social dynamics and the evolutionary adaptations. So, you know, uh, this, of course, means that there is more care that a pup receives than just from the mother. What does this imply for its survival? Because we also know that mortality is very high. So our, our data from five years uh, tells us that mortality is as high as 81% in the first seven months of life. So 
only 19% of the pups uh, become adults to begin with. And then, of course, there is more mortality later. And uh, a lot of this is because of us. So, you know, accidents, uh, mm. people killing pups on purpose. Mm. So all kinds of uh, stuff happen in their lives. And uh, the fact that it's not just dependent on the mother, but then there are other group members who can show care and do show care would actually mean that this has been an adaptive feature in their survival because, mm. you know, even the mother can die in an accident. In fact, we had one group in which the mother died the day after the pups were born. Oh. And uh, her mother, who was part of a group, was also heavily pregnant. What we found is this grandmother kind of adopted the pups and curled around them and lay down and the pups started oh uh, uh, suckling from her. Oh. And then uh, the next day we come and see the grandmother is no longer pregnant and she is taking care of the puppies. And this ha something happened overnight and I spoke to a vet friend. He said... Uh, it's possible that because she started lactating before giving birth because of the stimulus of uh, suckling by the pups, she might have had a miscarriage because her hormones went all haywire and she you know, started oh, uh, lactating oh. rather than maintaining the pregnancy. So she might have had a miscarriage. And when that happens, they typically also would eat up uh, the dead fetus because that's a lot of energy. So that's why we couldn't see anything. Oh, but then yes. the uh, the, she behaved like the mother to the pups mm -hmm. and the pups survived. So, uh, you know, kind of uh, direct adoption by the grandmother was quite fascinating. But then what I'm trying to say is if there was no, uh, you know, tendency to adopt another pup, uh, another individual's offspring or to show care, then this wouldn't have happened. So that would have added to the mortality of the pups. So that definitely right. has a huge survival value. Yeah, that's so, it's so fascinating. Um, right, and Mel, Mel Mac, same word, fascinating information to help understand our best friends no matter where they're from. Yeah, it's it's so interesting, and you wonder, like, how, uh, that's what I'm wondering, like, curious about how it crosses all time zones and, and locations, you know, the behaviors, what's different, what's, you know, what's influencing the differences in behaviors, what's similar, um, it would be so neat, actually, if you were all like had an umbrella organization that you were all like <laughs> connected to. Oh, yeah. You could meet every year. Absolutely. I've got it all planned out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, hi, Bake Cake. Help. Hey, yay. Caught you in a live. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad. Um, and another picture I wanted to bring up was that's so interesting that the mother it's like a sacrifice she almost too you are you look so pretty and you're sorry um the mother of the grandmother I guess kind of sacrificed yeah. her oops there we are again <laughs> I didn't label these very well apparently there we go whoops um kind of sacrificed her own litter for her daughter's litter yeah, so interesting. that's what it turned out to be. Yeah, it's like a soap opera with dogs. Like, it's like, <laughs> as the dogs turn. Yeah, it actually is. There's a lot of, and, you know, this is all the nice uh, things that humans think are nice. But then there is also this fact that uh, <laughs> the pups are stealing milk from their uh, maternal relatives. So oh uh, that's the other thing which happens. So we found that, uh, you know what? 
first we thought, oh, it's such a nice hunky-dory situation. The, <laughs> you know, all the lactating mothers are taking care of each other's pups. But then we were like, you know, biologically, it doesn't make sense. If mm. uh, there are two mothers, they should, uh, you know, both try to feed their own pups. Why would they, you know, cross uh, yeah. nurse uh, puppies? Right. And then what we found was when we looked at these lactation events, what we found was that it's basically the puppies when they are you know, growing up a bit, whenever they find a lactating female passing by, they'll try to run after her and grab her and start suckling. They don't care whether it's the mother <laughs> or the grandmother or the aunt. And when it is uh, not her own pups, the mother would realize this, look around, see that it's not her pups, kick them off and move away. Oh, but okay. when it's her own pups, then she would allow them to nurse. And that is why, you know, on the face of it, it looked like everybody is nursing everybody. But then when we looked at the data more closely, we realized, no, they're not. They are actually rejecting nursing attempts by non-filial pups, as we call them, not their own pups. Whereas uh, they are allowing their own pups to nurse. But the pups are trying to, it's called milk theft. And it's something that's known in... Uh, animals which live in herds so you know milk theft has been studied in animals like giraffes and deer and horses where you know there's a large herd and everybody's moving together and there are a lot of offspring there milk theft happens but um, mm -hmm. this is the first time we actually found milk theft in a canid yeah that's really interesting um right that makes total sense a hungry baby puppy wouldn't care yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is that the the selfish? I have to go back because I was reading something about you had like a selfishness study. Was that the... Um... Yeah, that, uh, that's that's the selfish pups yeah. uh, paper. <laughs> um, so you also talked about, I'm not sure if that was the same study, but you talked about how... Um, if you could talk more about it here, like dogs picking love over food. I think maybe we touched on it in the beginning, but maybe we could talk more about that. Oh, yeah, that's one of my favorite experiments. So, you know, there is this uh, notion and from the literature we saw that uh, we think that dogs came to humans for the food and then they got love and then stayed on. And uh, some studies in pet dogs earlier have actually shown that uh, dogs would uh, befriend people who give them food. Uh, but then we said, okay, let's try uh, testing this in the stray dogs. And uh, what we did was very simple. You have a piece of uh, chicken in your hand and you put another similar piece of chicken on the ground and you call out to a dog and offer both pieces. And then you try to see whether the dog will come contact and feed from your hand. And we found that majority of dogs will approach but eat from the ground, not from your hand. You know, they will stop at that distance, yeah. not touch you. Okay. But then for half the dogs, we patted them on the head three times. And for the other half, we just gave them another piece of chicken. And we repeated the trials. And uh, we found that uh, the choices did not change when you mm -hmm. did, uh, did this immediately. But when we did this on repeated days, then the dogs which were given food and only food continued mostly to just feed from the street or the ground on the dogs who had eaten from the hand at the beginning continued to come and eat from the hand. But the dogs who were being petted, not given any extra food, 
those dogs started coming and feeding from the hand from day two more often so we basically oh, okay. said you know after several rounds of this that it's easier for the dogs to trust people who show them this affection rather than people who just give them food and in the context of the free-ranging dogs it made a lot of sense because we know that dogs can be lured with food and then harassed by people people do that or especially for, for pups and juveniles or can be stolen from their mothers by people you know for adoption or for whatever reasons and they can even be poisoned you know they can be given poisoned food but anyone who's a dog lover would not do these right so if yeah. they learn to respond to a show of affection rather than just food they are more likely to befriend people who will not harm them mm -hmm. and over uh, you know many years of association if the population has actually undergone this adaptation then it makes a lot of sense because they would automatically you know survive better if they don't just come for the food all the time yeah so right someone in the someone in the chat i put it up there mel mag was saying safety question mark so that is what exactly yeah, yeah. and love love for a connection to the human so yeah yeah curious about that could you tell us about that do you feel like it's not only safety but there's more to it um like a the connection no so i i can tell you you know that we did a follow up study on this uh it's not yet <laughs> published but we're writing up the paper so we actually tested so you know um we had initially done a study where we found that uh, dogs uh, you know have a kind of 50 50 response to whether they'll follow a pointing gesture as an adult or not so uh, and we found that you know if you uh point towards a bowl and they find food then they are able to trust you more than if if you point towards a bowl which has no food then they'll not trust you in the second round mm -hmm. so we put these two together and what we found is you know dogs you test them on day 1 where you show them the pointing gesture and they either follow your point or do not follow your point then half the dogs are randomly given food and half the dogs are randomly given love and then you test them after 5 days and what we found is the dogs which were given food continue to show the response that they showed on day 1 so with food they don't get uh, you know uh, get to trust you so soon but the 50% of the dogs which were now given love and no extra food after 5 days they follow your point not only that they forget that they're not supposed to trust you if you point them towards the wrong bowl so if you repeatedly point them a point they will go to the bowl your point if they don't find food they'll still follow your point to the next round so it is really about building trust and somehow they're trusting the individual who's who's giving them love much more than they're trusting the individual who's giving them food consistently very interesting so what do you you know i'm kind of curious um what that means to you like when you sort of summarize it and put it all together um cuz those are like that's like data i guess and but what is it how do you put it <laughs> okay so firstly i uh, always like to say that they are very very smart and they have uh, 
really learn to survive in the human jungle. And that is, I think, the summary of everything that we are finding. There's a lot of flexibility of behavior. They are uh, very, very adapted to, you know, changing their decisions or depending on past experiences as well as immediate experiences. So they are able to, you know, uh, adjust their behavior to the humans that they're interacting with. And they are very good at finding food. They're very good at hiding away from trouble. So all of that put together, I think they have survived so well because of uh, you know their ability to learn about humans uh, very easily. And uh, this learning mm-hmm. is some of it is like kind of an innate uh, learning which is there, but uh, some of our results actually show that some of this learning happens as they grow up. Mm-hmm. So. Pups are not able to do this, but then when they become adults, they're able to do this. And uh, we kind of have a feeling that this learning is two ways. One is through their own personal experiences with humans. But secondly, they also learn from their group members and interactions that they see other dogs having with humans. They don't Mm -hmm. have to individually learn it through their own experiences. It could Mm -hmm. be also a a seen experience. Mm -hmm. So... There, there, there is a lot of, uh, you know, uh, learning which is happening as the dog is growing from a puppy to an adult. And uh, they, that, that, that basically says how smart they are, that, you know, they're able yeah. to adjust so easily. Very interesting because, you know, I can even say when we were bringing a dog into our home after we had a dog in our home and then we were, uh, they, the, the foster people brought in our second dog, Kane who we did adopt that evening, but we brought him in and we were like, let's, you know, show him through the other dog that we take care of her and that will help him to see. And, and it, I think it does it, it, they say, Oh, okay, well they're being nice to that dog. I think that they will be nice to me. That seems to be (laughs) what that translates. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so that's good. That's something a very good thing for um, shelters to keep in mind, or different agencies to, you know, if they're pulling a dog in, show them you with another dog. Yeah, probably might help to build trust more. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, so I have to ask you this: Do you now you're you've definitely got the the science. Um, aspect of this but curious because this is the an animal communication show do you <laughs> do you, what are your thoughts or do you feel like you pick up or do you you know believe in do you um do in some some kind of intuitive um communication with the animals understanding their thoughts their feelings after doing this for a while or thoughts i wouldn't know but uh, yeah definitely i think i have always communicated with dogs because uh, you know and that's probably what got me interested in them because, you know, I look at a dog and the dog looks at me and it comes wagging its tail towards me and we make a connect. So obviously there is definitely this, you know, uh, trust building happening uh, at first sight. And uh, I, I can now see that uh, it's, uh, you know, yesterday I was telling someone that, you know, often people talk about dominance and aggression and that humans have to be the alpha I don't think there's anything like that which exists. They don't, hmm. you know, befriend you because you're the alpha, but because they consider you a friend. 
it's it's very different from you know taking you as the alpha or the leader or the dominant but i i don't think it's really the dominance or the aggression but it's really the affection and the uh, you know connection which uh, makes a lot of sense and uh, i i of course as a biologist i will uh, try and refrain from anthropomorphizing everything but uh, <laughs> when it comes to a dog you cannot help say that yes we connect and actually you know for us at the dog lab uh, i think the first big lesson for all of us is to try and not make that connect while we are doing observations with the model uh, system mm. it's a lot of learning because you know you see two dogs fighting and one dog getting hurt the, your instant reaction should be oh you no know, poor dog let me go help him but then you are taking observations and you have to be objective you have to be the silent spectator and not right. get involved in their fight so that takes a lot of effort because you know my students yeah. have to go through this process that your focal group is something that is not uh, you know a set of dogs which you love but you have to yeah. completely objectify yourself first so yes that connect is there and i think they do make a lot of effort to connect with us and when you, when you have a random dog on the street you know making eye contact and uh, giving you this melting look you definitely know that there's some chemistry happening yeah definitely that would be very difficult actually i can't imagine um <laughs> sitting back and just kind of letting it happen <laughs> if you felt like you it could is. do anything oh that would be tough it is and these Absolutely. are tell us about this picture are these your some of your people that are out on the doing a are these dog lab um oh you can't see that's right there's two people two um uh, looks maybe like a woman and a man like bending over and there's a dog a whitish dog um oh yeah this is an experiment where we were trying to uh check whether they have a preference between males and females so you have uh, oh. two students who are wearing the same clothes uh, but one is a male and another is a female and we uh the one of my ms students she wanted to check whether dogs have a preference for one of the human genders and she was doing this series of experiments and we did not actually find a preference Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Did you find any, um, I mean, I, I know what you were just saying. I get what you're saying that like, there's a, maybe not that like alpha, it's more about just um, affection and, and love, um, safety, um, the way they treat them. But did you find anything else that just stood out as far as preferences? Um, anything that I don't even know, maybe it wasn't scientific, but something that you noticed? <laughs> not really because uh, we've done a lot of these experiments to try test for preferences of certain humans okay. so other than people who show affection we have not found anything else yet okay that's very interesting um, but what we found is actually that <clears throat> it depends a bit on you know where the dogs are so their habitat because what we what we found is dogs which are say in a very very crowded place in a city are uh, kind of uh, more wary of people in the beginning but more uh, lured by food easily whereas dogs which are in you know quiet peaceful neighborhoods where they don't see human footfall all the time are uh, less 
prone to approaching a stranger even when given food and uh, typically it's like the intermediate density human density kind of places where you know you maybe have a neighborhood and a few shops and you know not a very crowded place where the dogs are the friendliest because mm-hmm. they are used to seeing strangers but not in very high numbers so they don't feel threatened they approach you easily even when you don't uh, give them food so what we are seeing again is you know depending on where the dog lives depending on its daily experience oh, in college personality varies <laughs> okay got it okay and um gosh it's so interesting all of this people asking questions um Somebody talking about they got a new a new pity, a new pit bull, so that's exciting. Um, somebody was asking, uh, okay, we'll kind of have to wonder why some canines are more trusting than others early on. I guess I'm wondering it. Yeah, do, does any of the the studies you've done? Because these are these is a little different because they're street dogs, but. Um, and the dogs that we interact with mostly here are not, they're mostly, um, dogs that maybe were in someone's home and then, you know, were, they're just mostly not street dogs. Although there are people, I would say more in the South. Like I noticed this when I go to visit family in Texas, for instance, I'm in New Jersey on the East coast of the United States, but I, I did notice a big difference when I was, when I would go to Texas growing up and see, dogs wandering. I was like, what? That's different. Um, so I know there are places and they're changing it a little bit in the South. It had to do with like the spaying and the neutering programs too, like that those, those got more put into to play um, as the years have gone on. But I'm curious about that. Like with the, did you, do you feel like anything, any of the information you have seen speaks to, uh, you know, this comment about kind of wonder why some canines are more trusting than others early on, other than geographic location, being around people. Um, it, if, if the question is about the breeds, then um, I, I'm sure there would be differences between the breeds because uh, they have been bred for different traits, right? So there would be friendlier breeds and less friendly breeds. So it would be a, a lot of the genetics which would determine uh, their behavior because of, uh, and you know, when we are talking about breeds, there's also a lot of inbreeding happening and uh, that would influence uh, their behavior to some extent. But if you are talking about, uh, you know, free roaming canids, then um, of course, you know, the ones who have not been exposed to humans for a long time, for example, here we have jackals in some areas which are uh, not urban, and they are very shy. They don't, don't step out and uh, they will, they are nocturnal, uh, dogs chase them and they have fights with dogs, but then uh, they try to avoid humans uh, or, you know, maybe coyotes or uh, foxes. But then even among the uh, street dogs, as I said, that depending on the habitat in which they are, their response to humans would be very different. So I think it's basically the exposure of over generations plus over a lifetime. And it's, uh, you know, cumulative experience with humans because if a dog has had a very negative experience with humans when it was younger, it is uh, more likely to be fearful, stay away, 
not approach even when you try to give it a lot of food or even show it a lot of love it's going to be very varied so personal experiences also matter okay um and then somebody mel mac was asking um can't help to wonder if other countries where the canine is a prey if they become less reluctant to bond with humans or trauma bond maybe but so wonder i don't know if you have research for many locations where maybe they're no we don't so in india there is a group which is trying to study the same dogs but in remote areas where there are some instances of the dogs uh, coming into conflict with wildlife and uh, there are reports uh, not very frequent but there are still reports of the dogs forming larger packs and hunting down uh, some wildlife uh, but these are typically areas which are away from human habitation where there weren't dogs earlier and the dogs have ended up there because there have been a lot of tourists and uh, because of the tourist traffic because of the increasing garbage dogs have come and remained and when there is no tourist season then uh, they tend to hunt so there is a lot of again you know anthropogenic uh, activities which lead to a behavioral shift in the dogs but then we don't have data on that we haven't worked on that and uh, this is uh, something which is uh, you know only coming up in the recent years uh, from observational data but then um, there isn't really any anyone else that i know of as of now who's working on this okay that's interesting it would be interesting to see that uh if they sort of picked up on it <laughs> whether yeah it's, like where'd my friend go you know like intuitively if they knew like from my perspective they they would know they would know that it was a threat um so i'm wondering is there anything i've um asked or, th or didn't ask that about any of the research you've done that I tried to kind of, I, I read quite a number of your articles. They're very interesting. People can find those online. Um, you can kind of Google your name and I'll put, or I have, and I'll put also the link in if I haven't, I had it in the pre sort of advertising for this event. I had the link for your um, site, but we'll, if, yeah. we'll, we'll make sure that it's there. So you can find her website and you can find some information, but I'm wondering if I missed anything. Um, because it's all so fascinating, but I'm sure I've missed something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if there are any questions on the YouTube, then I can answer that. Yeah, if there's anything else that, if anybody, if I, if you came in later, I didn't ask something that um, you're wondering about, feel free to jump in. Um, Oh, you know what I wanted to ask you about? Because you not only have been involved in uh, the dog world, but you did do some work with wasps, right? Yeah. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Was your dissertation you said, yeah. or was? Yeah, it was my PhD. And um, I uh, was working on, as I said, and I was working on wasp politics, as I like to say. So, <laughs> Uh, this is a primitive society of wasps, which means that um, the queen does not look different from the workers. So in principle, a worker can become a queen, unlike honeybees, where somebody has to be born a queen, you know, genetically a queen. But uh, in primitive insect societies, uh, the queen and the workers look the same. 
the only difference is in behavior. You have to watch the nest and see who is laying an egg to understand that she's the queen. And uh, when I joined the lab, the burning question was about the next queen because earlier work had shown that if you remove the queen from the nest uh, and uh, let the nest be, then only one of the workers who was present on the nest at that time becomes extremely aggressive. And it's mm -hmm. almost like, you know, some something magical has happened because everybody was, you know, peeping into the cells, cleaning the nest, building the nest, feeding the brood. And then suddenly, as if something, you know, they, they have all gone mad because there's this one individual who dashes around on the, and these are in open paper nests and you can see everything that's happening. And they've, they'll be running around all over the nest and this one female, she'll be beating up uh, individuals, lit literally, you know, chasing them, biting them, uh, pushing them out of the colony. And uh, what we found was that if you don't put the queen back, so you're simulating the death of a queen, basically, then this one individual will uh, gradually reduce this aggression over the next week or so and start laying eggs and become the queen. Mm. And the big question was, who is this? Uh, we called her the potential queen when she was you know, becoming the queen. So who is this potential queen? And the seniors before me had tried to look at behavior, look at, you know, the morphology, look at the time spent on the nest, the work kind of work that she was doing. And we could not identify who this one special worker is because she looked like any other worker as long as the queen was there. And then I asked the question, okay, we cannot tell whether there is a potential queen who is already designated as the next in line, uh, but do the wasps know? Mm. And uh, the standard question was, how can wasps know, right? You know, that's not even a scientific question. <laughs> so we designed an experiment where we could ask this question and uh, kind of trick the wasps into telling us. And I found that, yes, the wasps know. Mm. Uh, because if you give them a wrong potential queen, she's not going to be accepted. They have to have the right potential queen uh, in the sense that if you make someone believe that she is the potential queen, and uh, then bring back the real potential queen, then the real potential queen will immediately be accepted and the wrong potential queen will mm. go back to being a worker. So it's a, it's a very complicated experiment, difficult to explain without you know uh, images or something. So I'm just giving you the okay. overview. But we actually found this. And I also found the source of a queen pheromone, which uh, the queen uh, produces from a gland near her um, sting. And she actually, applies this pheromone like with a paintbrush on the nest from time to time. Mm -hmm. And that is how the workers know that the queen is present on the nest because the pheromone stays on the nest for some time. And we showed that if you remove the queen and uh, you know cr take this gland out of her, if, of course you have to kill her, crush this gland and put this uh, extract on the nest, then the potential queen thinks that the queen is back and she's stops showing aggression for a while mm. until again she realizes the queen is not back and she starts becoming aggressive oh again. My gosh. so wow. that was what my phd was about so you know trying to understand who the queen's successor is and how the queen maintains her uh, monopoly on the nest and how she controls the workers so that's what uh, what i was doing so the workers are always males is that right no all the workers are females in all okay. social insects, all the workers are females. 
males are just there for reproduction so they are allowed to be on the nest for a few days and then they are uh, ha- you know really uh, tortured by the workers uh, thrown out of the nest and they they go out they mate and they die the males don't do any work but um, the workers are all females it's an all female uh, society so how do the when you because you were saying like you have you put in a potential queen how do you put in okay. a potential queen so what we did was uh you know in a colony say there are 50 uh workers mm-hmm. so what we did was we cut the colony physically into two mm-hmm. put them on two sides of a wire box so that you can watch it from outside but it's closed from all sides and uh, the wasps cannot escape and we put a mesh partition between the two sides of the nest. So now the nest is split in two and we distribute the workers randomly on the two sides. So it's a simply a question of probability that if there is what we call an air designate, then she can only be on one side. So we put the queen on one side. So the other side gets a potential queen. Let's call her potential queen one. So we have queen right side and queen left side. Now. After some two hours, when this potential queen thinks that she has control over the nest, I pick her from the side, I take the queen from the side, and simply exchange them. Hmm. Queen goes back to the other half, where she takes over, and everybody goes back to work. Queen goes back to checking out her nest and laying eggs. PQ1 comes here. If she's the heir designate, she should simply continue to beat up all the other workers on the other side and continue to be a potential queen. If she's not the heir designate, the p- real potential queen sitting here would know that she is an imposter. And that's exactly what happened in half of the experiments. A PQ2 emerged who did not allow the first PQ to show aggression. And the most interesting thing was it, we f- expected, you know, there's going to be a lot of fight. But no, moment this PQ2 started, fi- you know, beating up workers, the PQ1 went back to a normal work level, mm. did not fight with the PQ2 as if they knew, as if right. she knew that she was an imposter. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, I take the PQ2 from here because she has to be acceptable to all the workers. And I again exchange her with the queen. I put her on the side. And here, she continues to be PQ2, which means that she is the heir designate. So, wow. you know, a simple trick of probability uh-huh. did this. Wow. So I feel like that leads into something I did want to ask you about. I do have another I have another dog question that I remembered, but I'm going to save that yeah. for after because this leads right into it. You started a science um, organization for young, for girls, right? <laughs> Speaking of queens and or trying to help young women, right? Come into the or youngsters, uh, maybe not not girls. So it's the okay. International Young Academy of Science. So it is a uh, science academy uh, where, for which I was the founding chair okay. and I was involved in the founding process. So it's an academy of young people. Uh, you can enter until you're 40 years old and it's a five year membership in which you can do a lot of uh, outreach, uh, you know, uh, kind of science and society activities. One of which is to, uh, you know, promote uh, science to people. And another is to, you know, enthuse young girls to come into science. So a lot of uh, interactions with society that we try to do. And I was also at the Global Young Academy, which is uh, 
again, a global organization across uh, continents. And uh, I was uh, just this year I stepped down as the chair, uh, where again we are you know doing a lot of science policy, science education, outreach uh, kind of uh, activities. Okay. Do you find that there's uh, fewer women in the sciences? Do you feel like it's becoming more even, more equal? Uh, no, it's still quite low. Uh, uh, we have some data. You know, uh, I'm part of this. Uh, a currently formed new body where it's an inter-academy uh, platform for women in STEM in India and we were looking at some data so you know it's very unfortunate that uh, if you look at schools and college level then there are almost equal numbers of girls and boys but then as you go up the academic ladder the number or the percentage of women go down mm. uh, there is what we call a leaky pipeline and this mm. is very poor across the world and in a India, it's like as low as some 14% of women in academic positions as wow. of now. Okay. Yeah, I did actually catch the interview on your website. Uh, somebody interviewed you about your experience. Going oh, yeah. Uh, that was uh, Nirena from Tracer's Dreams. Yes. Yeah. I won't have you, you know, I won't ask you to recount the whole thing. It is there on the website and it's very interesting and also very troubling what you. <laughs> had to go through to get to yeah. where you are. You're quite the fighter talking about the queen bee. Um, <laughs> you, <laughs> you stuck with it through a lot of adversity, a lot of challenges. Um, but it's wonderful because you've been able to do that and then you know create these um, this academy and, and help other people to and other young women. I'm sure that you inspire other young women and make them feel confident to keep going. So. Um, is that just in um, that academy mostly in India? Do you get mostly people who are uh, coming to you from your area? Not really. In India, we have uh, people across uh, disciplines of science, engineering, medicine. Uh, it's a very, very diverse body. So it's not just my area. It's uh, all kinds of sciences put together. Okay, and then geographically, though, it's just India that are people who would come into your program, into that institute? Yeah, so there are uh, people from across the country, and the, inst uh, the academy is actually based in uh, New Delhi, which is the capital. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the physical office is there, but then there are members spread over uh, the entire country. Okay. All right. So if people wanted to, if people were interested in that, um, just go to the website that I'll have in the description. And so right now, the Global Young Academy and the International Young Academy of Science are both looking for new members. So if somebody is listening oh, okay. from India who is interested in, you know, science outreach, interaction policy, and if you are below 40, please check out the India's ad and apply. And uh, if you are uh, not from India, but from any other part of the world, do check out the ad for the Global Young Academy membership. It's a fascinating organization to be in. It's an excellent experience for a lifetime. Very neat. Okay. Um, yes. And fr so from your experience with the bees, did you kind of get into this topic of, of how the, the, the problem with the bee population? Um. Uh, not really. Uh, okay, firstly, it was not bees, but wasps. 
but which are basically oh sorry predators. <laughs> they don't do any pollination and then they are, uh, so these are uh, predators they are uh, carnivores and uh, i was uh, we we were mostly working on the social behavior of uh, the wasps because you know in the lab uh, it's been mostly focused on understanding the insect societies and the evolution of insect societies so that's the kind of work that we were doing but then my exposure to this uh, field of research you know entire uh, field of uh, social biology and, uh, and you know looking at cooperation and conflict and social dynamics is what also made me think of the dogs as an interesting model system because uh, uh, you know from qualitative observations of dogs i saw that they have a lot of interesting social interactions so my kind of was background ties up to my current work in that sense got it okay okay and then the thing i didn't want to forget to ask about was dog vocalizations uh ha. <laughs> how could i forget that we have done very little work on dog vocalizations as of now there was only one student who was uh, looking at uh, whether um, if you do playback of recorded uh, barks uh, then they can recognize them as their own or or different groups so we were just basically doing playbacks and seeing whether they respond differently to their own groups barks versus a different groups bark and we found that they don't uh, but what uh, seemed to be more interesting was that uh, they are not really responding differently whether you are playing it uh, within their territory or not but more like you know whether it was a uh, 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 more like it dependent on the context in which you were playing the park so uh, you know whether uh, you were it was uh, very close within their territory or whether it was far away and things like that so they, they don't they, they don't just respond to any bark so that that was what we found uh we do want to do some work on understanding vocalization patterns and uh, we were considering a collaboration with uh, a friend of mine and another iser uh we haven't really gotten to it because the pandemic came in mm -hmm. uh, a lot of work had been planned i bought a recorder and then the pandemic started oh. <laughs> so uh, we have not been able to do the necessary field work yet okay well that'll definitely be very interesting when you do that yeah this is also interesting um now do you accept people for these studies people who are interested in joining and becoming volunteers or students or oh yeah uh my lab has always had a lot of interns who volunteer and you know learn a bit of the work with us and uh, right now we are also doing a citizen science project which we call hashtag bonkers scavengers uh the idea was that you know during the lockdown what were the dogs doing if this mm. the because we had extended periods of lockdown so we mm. tried to uh, understand you know whether that was affecting their behavior because the human behavior was changing yeah. and of course we could not go out to do field work so we uh, launched a few surveys which are still live you know if you go to our website you'll find the links to these surveys so uh, there is one where we were trying to get uh, there's a long questionnaire which only very you know pro dog lovers are filling but then there is a, there's a shorter questionnaire we are trying to understand if the dogs are migrating you know they're they're going away to different areas so just we told people you know sitting in your own home have you observed any changes in the dog behavior fill this up and even if you have not observed you know zero mm -hmm. is a number so that's mm -hmm. that's good data 
so we are we have started this initiative for the last one year it's been going on and i request anyone who has uh, free ranging dogs around them if you would like to just visit the blog you know search for hashtag bonkers scavengers you're going to find it and uh, do help us get this data so we are always very happy to have volunteers working with us absolutely okay wonderful it's hashtag and there is the uh, hashtag bonkers scavengers uh, one word uh, and uh, if anybody is interested in a phd so there is a program called study in india uh, which uh, helps people from other countries to come to india and do a phd and our institute accepts uh, study in india fellows so you could look out for uh, you know phd advertisements you could write to me apply and we could process this oh that's wonderful okay great um so I'm wondering about the dogs because we were a little bit more free here. It sounds like you couldn't really be outside even in, in India doing because here we For could be outside. Periods. Like we could. No, uh, field work was not safe for us because okay, there were periods when there were curfew. But then uh, now we have resumed field work, of course. But then for a long period, we could I could not allow my students to step out because it was completely okay. under not under control it was just not safe for people to step out mm -hmm. and a lot of students were like very eager to go and collect data but i said yeah. no please don't i don't mm -hmm. want you to fall sick because of work right so we stopped everything okay what have you observed did the dogs change from what you can tell so far did they uh qualitatively yes uh, we saw a lot of dogs uh, migrate away from certain areas where they were mostly dependent on say uh, you know eateries uh, for their food and mm -hmm. the eateries shut down but then again uh, in certain areas uh, volunteers started feeding dogs and there were congregations of dogs in these areas where there were volunteers giving out food so there mm -hmm. have been migrations that's def definitely there but i still don't know how much data we are going to get uh, for a good robust statistical analysis okay because hey, I'm wondering what what happened with them if they um you know the survival so, and interestingly you know this connects very nicely to this paper which has just come out by the way yesterday in uh, behavioral ecology sociobiology where we asked a similar question uh, but in a different context so we were uh, wondering you know whether the uh, the resources influence them more or the human behavior influences them more so this was kind of a follow-up after the study where we saw that you know human densities in different areas influence how the dogs respond then we thought okay but then what about short-term changes so what about if you have a kind of trade-off between a lot of food but also a lot of people mm -hmm. and uh, you know which is going to influence the dogs and we had this perfect set up because uh, in our part of uh, the country we have this one big festival called the durga puja uh, which is a religious uh, event but then it's more like a socio cultural event because it's it's like a fest so the entire city decks up and there are uh, you know structures constructed like you know temporary temples uh, in parks and sometimes in the middle of roads and then there are fairs around them there there's always a lot of food and for about a week's time nobody uh, you know the city does not sleep so there are crowds 24 7 because uh, there's a lot of artwork which is happening around this event so you know mm -hmm. the idols are all done based on theme so you can you know 
maybe see the pyramids of Egypt or the Taj Mahal or, or <laughs> wow. you know, all kinds of fantastic artwork is done. Yeah. Uh, and people come in, you know, thousands and tens of thousands to visit these. It's it's complete craziness. And the people are constantly eating, you know, meal times no longer remain. You are just out on the road <laughs> with your so friends and family fun. and mm -hmm. you're you're surviving on junk food for five days, like that. <laughs> so there's a lot of food and a lot of uh, garbage, which is, uh, uh, you know, excellent resource for dogs. And we asked, what do the dogs do? Because there's also a lot of crowding and uh, people will not like to step on a dog's tail. And mm -hmm. uh, we carried out a study uh, in uh, many of these areas where there are these big pujas. And uh, what we found is that the dogs actually do not get lured by the food. Huh. But the resident dogs from the areas go away. Oh, they are nowhere around. Mm -hmm. But a month later, they get back. Mm -hmm. So if okay. you look at pre-event and post-event, it's comparable. But during the event, the dogs are not there. And even the dogs who are there are mostly in a resting you know, play, uh, state. They're, you know, shying away, not coming towards the food most of the time. So majority of them are not getting lured by the, you know, high resources. So, you know, it's a short time kind of uh, behavioral uh, plasticity that they are showing, which was very interesting. And that That's also led us to think, you know, what's going to happen when for two months everything is closed down? Then what are the dogs going to do? Mm -hmm. So that's what led to the Bunker Scavengers mm. uh, study. Okay, got it. Um, I was curious. Do you hear them barking on the when in the street? Oh yeah, okay. you know every night they are barking outside my door. Okay. <laughs> and this is the mating season, so I'll, so you know, as I said, you know they don't show a lot of aggression. But typically, what we find is in the late night, they kind of have these reinforcement of territorial boundaries through vocalizations. Okay. So. They're not fighting, you know, they're going to just stand at two corners of a street and they just look at each other and bark away. And then after some time, they're done with barking, they go back to resting as if they're having a dialogue. And only when a group tries to move in into another's territory, then they're going to chase. So there are dogs which are looking out and they're barking or howling. And then there are howling responses coming in from long range and shortly range uh, distances. Okay. So there's a lot of communication happening through their vocalizations. You can hear them all the time. Oh, so interesting. Okay. So they're saying, don't come in here. This is ours. Yeah, probably. A lot of the time. Yeah. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Our food is here. Stay away. Um, yeah. Cats. <laughs> cats are, can be intuitive in their meows too. Um, definitely. Um, so anything that I have forgotten to ask you or neglected to ask you that I should have, that would be <laughs> important? <laughs> I know. Okay, so one study that we had done, I thought it was a lot of fun. We were trying to understand if dogs can count. And we didn't know what to do about, uh, you know, how to, how to check whether they can count. And the question came up because, you know, we saw a lot of the puppies die. And the mother cries uh, or looks for the pups and after a day or two, she, she kind of settles down. So we were curious that, you know, can they actually count how many pups they have or, you know, do they actually know 
And uh, based on that, we said, okay, we can't really test if they can count one, two, three, four, but can they at least distinguish between less and more? And we did this with the food choice tests. And what we found was interesting that if you give them low grade food like biscuits, they don't care, they just pick up one. Uh, but if you give them a choice between biscuits and uh, say pieces of salad. Oh, you froze up there. Where'd you go? <laughs> and this is so interesting too. I'm hoping that you'll just come, come back in because sometimes this happens. We've done pretty good, I have to say, as far as our connection. Counting dogs, right? Sad way to test it, though. <laughs> oh, there we go. She's coming back in. And we got three of you. There we go. Yeah, we lost you for a minute there. I'm going to pull you out of... Yeah, I'm back. Okay, we've got a frozen you an active view. There we go. Perfect. Okay. So yes, we, we got cut off at the biscuits that were low uh, interest and then you were going into the higher interest and then you cut out. <laughs> oh, wait, now I can't hear you. Uh, I don't hear you right now. Oh, she's going to probably come back in. So with their puppies, I mean, um, Can you hear me? There we go. Yep. Perfect. Uh, yeah. So uh, what we did was we had uh, biscuits and we had half pieces of salami. And uh, then we found that if you give them equal numbers, they'll always go for the salami and not for the biscuits. So we were, you know, not finding a way to understand whether they are counting or not counting. And finally, we came up with a trick where you had four pieces of salami stacked together in one pile okay. versus four pieces spread out. And we said, okay, the smell will be the same, but they look very different. And uh, what are they going to do? And then we found that uh, they actually choose equally. So they are actually just looking at the, not really the numbers, mm -hmm. but they're distinguishing between less and more based on olfactory cues. Mm. So they're basically where they, where they get a more meat smell, they just go there. So if you give them a whole piece of salami versus a half, you know, four small pieces of salami, again, they'll choose equally because the, it, it, it's the same amount and they're getting the same smell. So, you okay. know, uh, that, it, it was kind of difficult for us to figure out whether they can count, but we found that they can definitely distinguish between uh, you know, fluctuations in quantities simply based on olfaction. And we've done a series of experiments which just reinforce this, that they're extremely good at sniffing out anything which has a smell of meat on it. And they are going to preferentially feed on something with smells of meat because mm. that's a very efficient scavenging strategy. Mm -hmm. Okay, fascinating. That's a great say. Oh, there's so many interesting. I wish I was there and I could <laughs> apply to be a volunteer. <laughs> I can get my yeah. husband to move to India. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been so fascinating. I don't see any additional questions. I know people are staying up late in Australia because they wanted to catch that. They wanted really late for them. Yeah, she, <laughs> Bake Cake is like, I, it's almost 2 a.m. I wanted to catch that story. <laughs> um, thank you. 
Ask them to count their fingers. Oh my god, how cute would that be? <laughs> be adorable. Um, oh, you must have so much fun with this. Um, so, I I would love to hear more in the future when you're doing more studies. If you you know be interested in coming back, that would be great. Uh, yeah, absolutely. What's going on? Yeah. Oh yeah, Melbourne. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here, and you know we'll let everyone. Even India and Australia go to bed. I'll be starting my day for the most part and uh, <laughs> hanging out with my dogs. But thank you so much for being here. And, uh, you know, be well, everybody. And everybody have a wonderful evening or day. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you. Everybody, God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.